this on and off series we've been doing for about a year now in 2 Corinthians, and we'll actually see it through to the end this time. We'll be wrapping up sort of in the mid-fall region. And I mentioned last week that 2 Corinthians is the sort of book that doesn't get preached front to back in most churches. Truth be told, it's a little bit dark. I remember having a conversation with Stephen, who's our tech guy here, and when he asked me, like, what's the gist of 2 Corinthians? And I sort of walked him through it. He said, are you sure you want to spend all this time in something that's so dark? And I said, I live my life in this place, so it's fine. Um, But there are, uh, despite the fact that we don't preach through it front to back, there are all these parts in 2 Corinthians that are really familiar to people, especially if you've grown up in the church. You have passages like 2 Corinthians 6.14, don't be unequally yoked. If you grew up in a youth group, that was like your life verse for your dating world, right? Uh, Or you have passages like 2 Corinthians 5.21 that talks about he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This great statement about what Christ endured and accomplished on the cross. If you've been in the church, you've likely heard it, even if you haven't heard the verses that surround it. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9, we have this treasure in jars of clay, which became this famous Christian band I've never really listened to before, but apparently they're really important. The, the point is that there's all of these familiar passages that, that we don't really understand the context of. And that's not to say that they've been abused, but sometimes they have been. Sometimes they've been made to say things that they don't actually say when you read the first sentence before and the sentence after. And we're in a passage like that this evening. It's one that is a favorite of people who sort of torture it into making promises that that God never made and that Scripture never makes. And so the hope when we come to passages like this is not that we can come up with a different interpretation just for the sake of being different. Uh, The hope is that we can come to it and find out what God has actually said and be convicted by it and challenged by it anew. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And you'll remember last week, uh, Paul was sort of setting up things for this collection going on in Jerusalem. Uh, The church in Jerusalem, for whatever reason, is in the middle of famine and difficulty. Uh, There's some, like, historical indication that there might have been a famine going on in the city, and it might be what Paul's trying to address here. And so all the churches surrounding Jerusalem, the Gentile churches, are contributing money to help the, the Jewish church that's struggling. But Paul wants to be above board in the way that he does things here with the church in Jerusalem, so he's sending Titus and these two other men who he said are worth... Uh, worth trusting, worth respecting. They're men of integrity, and they're going to kind of get things ready for this collection. And then we come to our text for the evening. We're going to be really in all of chapter 9 tonight. So let me read this first portion, which we'll only spend a little bit of time in, and then we'll walk through the second portion. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 1 through 5 says this, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for you know your re- your, uh, for I know of your readiness, of which I boast about you to the peace since Lacedonia, saying that Achaia, which is the region that Corinth is in, has been ready since last year. Your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you. 
for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So I don't know if you've had this experience before, but it's common in my life, where I find something that I'm super excited about, whether it's a restaurant or like a location or a movie or any other number of cultural things, and I hype it up to people. Because when I get excited about things, I go from like zero to 2,000 in no time at all. And, I, and everybody I know, it's like a group text of a bunch of strangers. Like they don't know each other, but they all know me. You have to check this place out. You have to see this movie. You have to listen to this band. We have to go visit, wh- whatever it is. And every so often, what I have so hyped up in my mind, which is, I, I don't feel like I'm being dishonest. I really do think it's as cool as I say it is. All of my friends come back profoundly disappointed by it. And then I feel stupid. And so like a great example of this would be Taco Bus. Uh, I've been on Taco Bus since before every soccer mom in the world was on Taco Bus. I've been about Taco Bus for years and years and years. And I told everybody how great it was. I was like, this is the best burrito that you'll ever have. This is my favorite Mexican restaurant. Like, it's awesome. You need to check it out. And somewhere between me telling everybody about Taco Bus and all of these people I told visiting Taco Bus, I'm convinced they changed the recipe or they hired new people or something happened because I started getting all these friends coming back and going, yeah, it, like, it wasn't that cool. Like You've been telling me for months and it just wasn't nearly as good as you said it was. And I thought to myself, well, you're either dumb or um, something's changed. And the reality is something has changed. They've changed some of their recipes. Things aren't exactly like they were when I hyped it up to people. And so this wasn't like a deep emotional crisis in my life. I wasn't sobbing about the fact that Taco Bus disappointed some people, but I did feel a little bit embarrassed by the fact that I'd spoken so highly of something. And this is something of what's going on here with Paul, because when the Corinthians were not off their rocker, they were excited about giving to this church in Jerusalem. They were excited about contributing to the needs of these brothers and sisters. And so Paul shared with the other churches hey, we're raising this money, Corinth is excited, they're on board, and then Corinth just sort of fell away, and they took a step back. But all the other churches are excited because Corinth's excited, and they've heard all this, all this good about Corinth's excitement, and they've contributed, and, and what Paul is saying here to them is like, listen, um, I'm coming with these people who were excited based on your excitement, so you kind of need to live up to that. Like you were eager to do this and everybody was eager to do it because you were eager to do it and now you're kind of getting a little bit gun shy and I just want you to know, you, I'm, I'm sending these men to you. I'm sending Titus and these two other people to get you ready so that you, you aren't blindsided by the fact that you made these promises and the church is excited about it. And so he goes on and he gets to really the heart of his argument. In verse 6, he says this, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So Paul moves from what's what's presently at hand, that he's raising money for this church in Jerusalem. And he takes a step back 
as to kind of get to the theology of why Christians give anything to anyone at all. He wants to get to the soil out of which this generosity is meant to spring. And so he uses this farming image. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And this is an image directly coming from farming in Paul's day and age. Now, I recognize that most people in this room don't resonate super deeply with farming illustrations. That's why I don't use a lot of them. And the reality is, I live in Tampa, and I'm convinced that whoever founded Tampa sowed the whole thing with salt before they built the city because nothing grows there. Like, it is a place of death and asphalt, and that's it. And for those of you who are maybe a little bit further out from the city, uh, maybe you're living in Plant City and you're in these areas where things still grow and live and thrive. Um, I doubt that any of you is like fundraising, not fundraising, but any of you are farming for your livelihood. Uh, I doubt that any of you are literally working the land in the hopes of feeding your family tomorrow. And if the crops fail, the farm dies. Like, I don't know that there's anybody in that situation. And having like a, a succulent cacti that looks good in Instagram pictures in front of a white painted brick wall does not make you a farmer either. The reality is that we are in many ways in our modern world detached from these images that so permeate the Bible. But listen, we as Christians have to do a better job of allowing the modern, or preventing the modern age rather, from swallowing up our connection to the imagery of the Bible. Because when scripture talks about the Christian life, it doesn't use craft coffee or social media or smartphones. It describes the Christian life in terms of a vine and branches. Trees planted by streams of water, garments stained red as blood, made white as snow and wool. So Paul reaches into this farming image. He talks about sowing sparingly and sowing bountifully. And in his day, there's, there's two ways that you can sow a field. There's the sparing way, which is for people who are lacking. Uh, they are impoverished. And so they take the few seeds that they have and they meticulously, tightly plant them into these different patches of soil along the rows. And they're cautious because they don't know when their resources will dry up. They don't know if they have enough to get them to the next harvest. And so it is this careful, lean, tight-fisted approach to farming. But there's this other way that Paul describes, which is sowing bountifully. And you've probably seen pictures of this. Uh, either in your Sunday school felt board or, or in just pictures of biblical things. It's the, the farmer with the bag full of seed and he's just throwing them across the field. This is an approach to planting that is open-handed. It comes from somebody who is not afraid to run out of what they have because they recognize that there's more where it came from. They're not operating on this shoestring budget and so they can hold their belongings loosely. They can hold the seed loosely and scatter it far and give it away freely. And at the heart of this image, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to be open-handed with their possessions, to be open-handed with the things that they have, to not be tight-fisted and so wrapped around them that they can't fling them far and wide for as many as might have need. Now, I realize that within this room, most of us probably don't have much money. And so the idea of just sort of flinging money far and wide sounds like that's a, a short track to you being homeless, right? 
and not paying your bills. But I think Paul's principle here, it holds if we're not even just dealing with money, but just with your resources in general. This is, this is not just a call to be financially generous. It's a call to a life of generosity. And so let me ask you, which of these images applies to you better? Are you the person who sows sparingly? Are you generous with little? Are you tight-fisted with that which you own? Or are you someone who sows bountifully, who holds your possessions loosely, who is willing to give them for the sake of those who struggle and are in need? And it doesn't have to be your money. What do you do with your time? Are you willing to take that resource and to give it to people who are in desperate need of your time and conversation with you? Those of you who have apartments or homes, do you open your home to people? Do you open your table to conversation to feed those who are in need? This doesn't just have to be what's in your bank account. It's a question of what do you do with the resources that you've been given? Do you cling to them tightly at the expense of people who are in need? Or do you open your hands and scatter them freely for as many as are desperate? But Paul makes this promise that whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. When I was in Uganda last summer, I was watching uh, television in the, the lobby of the hotel room we were staying in, and there was this guy named Prophet Elvis who was on TV. And I don't know if he picked that name for himself or if his family gave it to him. It's brilliant. Um, Prophet Elvis was essentially trying to uh, convince the Ugandans that if they were to give money to him and to his ministry, they would have the things that Prophet Elvis has, like a Mercedes-Benz and really nice suit and, um, I don't know, uh, a cool microphone. Like a, I mean, it, he was just trying to sort of convince people that if you buy into what I'm doing and if you contribute financially, you will in turn have what I have. And he was making his argument from texts like this. You know, if you sow into the ministry of Prophet Elvis you will reap bountifully the things of Elvis. He didn't actually say that, but, but he was kind of getting it. That, that was the heart of his point. And the, the fact is that this text is a favorite of people who are interested in using Scripture as a tool for financial profiteering. And yet if we put it in context, if we keep reading what Paul's saying, I think that perspective is indefensible. That's not the point that he's making because he goes on. And he says this in verse 7, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written, and this is the text we read from the Psalms earlier in worship, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. One of the songs we sang in worship was Come Thou Fount. And for the last five to seven years, this has been my favorite hymn in all of the hymns that I've heard. And what originally laid hold of me in this song when I first heard it was this line in the final verse, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And it just so resonated with me as I examined my own heart because I, I recognize in myself this tendency towards walking away from the things that I know I ought to do, wandering far from the things that God has called me to. 
I recognize in my own heart this tendency towards skepticism and doubt and wandering away from the callings of God and the things of the Lord. But as I've lived with this song now for five or six years and really started to think about it, I think it's the first line that lays hold of me more than the the latter. Come thou fount of every blessing. I wonder if you've considered, we, we sing it pretty often in college and career, have you considered what you are saying about God in this opening line? That he is the fount of every good thing in your life. He is the fount of all joy that you have experienced. True joy, it flows from him. That if you were to trace the rivers of your satisfaction back to their source, you would find him there as the fount of it all. And isn't this wonderfully in keeping with what Paul is saying here? As he says to them, that he who supplies the seed for the sower and bread for food will supply and he will multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. The reason that Christians can be loose with their possessions in blessing other people is that in the gospel, they have been tied to the fount of every blessing. It is no longer their business to produce a means to bless other people, but God supplies the blessing so that it can overflow to other people. Now, the the temptation is to think that I'm speaking about money, that God will always make sure you have more than enough money. And yet, that's not the case in Paul's life. It's not the case in really the life of any of the apostles. The promise here is not that you always have enough money, but that you will not be without the means to bless other people. And sometimes that's financial, if you've got a really nice bank account. But sometimes that's just relational. God has given you the ability to bless people in your conversations as you encourage and you edify them. Sometimes that's just in your hospitality that God has given you the ability to open your home to people who desperately need a place of refuge. But the reason why Christians can be loose with the things that they have is because they don't need to fear running out of the means to produce blessing because in Christ, we have received the source of all blessing, the fount from which it flows. Paul goes on. He says in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving. To God. And it's interesting here that, that when we think about generosity, maybe you've watched the, the guilt trip commercials that come on TV with the, the potbelly African baby with the flies buzzing around their face and arms of an angel playing in the background, and it's all sad and, and guilt trippy, for lack of a better, more sophisticated term. When we think about giving in, those, in that framework, we tend to think that giving is just about alleviating the need that we give because people have need. They don't have enough money for food. They don't have a place to stay. And that's the ultimate reason why we give. And yet for Paul, it goes deeper than that. He's not just asking them to give so that the Corinthians have money where there isn't any. But he wants them to give so that in having their needs met, the Corinthians might turn, or rather the people in Jerusalem might turn, and glorify God. There is this astounding thing that happens in the human heart when a need is met, that it produces gratitude towards the one who's lent the helping hand. When I was in college, I made a couple really bad choices, um, none of which were like, I mean, none of which were 
truly that horrible, I guess, in the grand scheme of things you could do in college. Uh, but I just slept in a lot and didn't go to class and would sit at Subway instead of doing school things. And that ultimately resulted in me not keeping my scholarships through to the end, uh, which ultimately resulted in this really big crisis in my life where I had to sit down with my parents and say, like, I might need to drop out of school unless you can help me. And so I sat with uh, my dad at the dining room table for probably 45 minutes while he just crunched the numbers in front of me. And he was like, now, son, if we help you, here's what we got to cut out of our own lives. Here's what this is going to cost us. Probably going to have to get rid of your car. We're going to have, and I mean, it, it was, it was going to be hard. Like those subway days had stacked up to be catastrophically expensive in the grand scheme of my life. And at the end of this 45 minutes of really just raking me over the coals in this low-key sort of way, he said, now that's all the things that would have happened had I not just won all this money at the Hard Rock. So anyways, here it is, and we can, we can pay for your tuition, son. Okay, I, I've never been so relieved in my whole life. I've never supported gambling more in my whole life than on that day. But it's interesting as, as I look back on that, as I consider the flow of my gratitude in response to having that need met. So my first thought was, well, thank God I can finish my degree. And my second thought was, thank God that Thurman knows his way around a poker, poker table. <laughs> but then my final thought sort of terminated on, thank God that he's provided in this very unbaptist way for, for, my, for my needs. But ultimately, my thankfulness didn't terminate on the Seminole Hard Rock or my dad. It ultimately ascended upward towards God's provision. And the fact that he had met my need in this unexpected way. And this is the point that Paul's getting at here for the Corinthians. Is we're giving to these people not just so their needs are met, and not just so they can say, hey, thanks, Corinth, but so that God might be glorified in the meeting of their needs through the hands of his people. And then he gets to this final portion. Verse 12, he says, The ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God by their approval of this service. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Consider the foundation of the Corinthians' generosity here towards the people in Jerusalem. Paul doesn't say that they have given or are planning to give because they're good people because they're particularly generous, because they're particularly well-off. Now, he grounds their giving specifically in the submission that comes from the confession of the gospel. This good work is not born out of their goodness, but God's goodness towards them. God's work is always prior to ours. God's generosity is always prior to our generosity. The soil from which our generosity springs forth is the soil of the gospel. And you see this throughout the whole New Testament that nearly every facet of the Christian life is what it is because of what has been accomplished in Christ 
on the cross, in the incarnation, in the resurrection. Husbands, love your wives. Why? Because Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Serve one another. Why? Because Christ came not to be served, but to serve. Love one another. Why? Because the Father has loved us with such love that we are called sons of God. Forgive one another. Why? Because in Christ, God has forgiven you. Give. Why? Because in the gospel, God has given us himself. Christianity, Christian generosity, open-handed giving of blessing to people in need is not a matter of being good for goodness sake or kind for kindness sake or generous for generosity's sake. It is about being good because God has been good to us and merciful because we've received mercy and generous because the Father has not spared his own Son and the Son has loved us with his very life. That is the foundation open-handed Christian generosity. It is God's own generosity towards us in the gospel. And in submission to that, we give gladly to those in need. And we confess with Paul, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So I pray that you would be generous, that you would hold your things loosely, not just your money, but your time, your resources, your wisdom, your relationships. And that out of an overflow of the mercy of God in your own life, you would be merciful and generous towards others.